0: Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with Tiago Forte founder of Forte Labs and writer at Praxis. Tiago, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Eric. Uh, really happy to be here.
0: Tiago, why don't we start by you getting into a little bit about what your mission is, what your, your sort of superpower and expertise is, and, and how that lends itself to your, your current focus.
1: Yeah, definitely. My area of expertise is really productivity, personal productivity. Uh, that's the arena that I play in. And I think my my particular take on it is that I don't see productivity as an end in itself, uh, as important as it is to be productive, to be effective, to produce results. The, the ultimate uh, reason any of that matters is that work uh, and being effective at work can be an avenue for personal growth. And personal growth, very broadly defined as just everything from self-awareness to self-understanding to agency to... To mindfulness, I, I kind of include all those things, is really, I think, very close to, if not the purpose of life, and also the thing that I have the most fun with.
0: <laughs> and so, how do you manifest that through your current work?
1: It's really kind of using productivity as a sort of, as just a, a medium, a creative medium. You know, some people use art, so they paint, and that's their, their way to express themselves and explore how they're, they're thinking and feeling and all these things. Some people use music, some people use dance. Those are, all, those are all amazing and clearly understood. But I think work and knowledge work and knowledge work on computers, which is what we spend so much of our days on these days, is just as valid of a creative medium um, and, and a way to kind of understand yourself and to express what you want to say in this world as any other. And that's not a, a typical way of viewing productivity. <laughs> totally.
0: And so what are the current projects that you're working on?
1: So my, definitely my main focus is a, an online course and soon to be a book called Building a Second Brain. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but it's, it's basically this idea that you can use technology, all the technologies that we, we use, you know, computers, mobile devices, uh, information management apps, not just as sort of tools, as dumb tools, but if you use them in a particular way, in a way that's intentional and strategic, they actually constitute a second brain like an extension of your mind. Um, And that's just a, it's a, it's a methodology. It's a series of integrated techniques that I teach. And that is really my, my, my almost sole focus these days.
0: Okay. So so let's get into it. What are you, obviously it's a, it's a whole course that people should sign up for But if, if people were just, if you were trying to uh, distill the principles to like five minutes or a few minutes of something that people can hear and and take something right, right from it uh, and start practicing something, what might that be?
1: Yeah, so there's four steps which spell the acronym code, C-O-D-E. There's four things you have to do. And the funny thing is most people do them all in some form. So I'm not saying, you know, with all the free time that you have and all this, you know, extra capacity that you have at your disposal, start doing this new thing. I'm just saying do what you're already doing more strategically. Um, And those four letters stand for collect. So save your ideas, your insights, the things you read, the podcasts you listen to, uh, websites you like, images you take, save them in one centralized software program on your, on your mobile devices, on your computer. Um, the O is organize. So or, this is the one that most people are really dying for is how to then organize all those things they've collected, those notes. D is distill, which is something that people often miss is, you know, if you save your highlights from a Kindle book, just the highlights can be thousands of words easily. So then you have to distill, summarize, condense those into what are the key points. Um, and then the E is express. So instead of you know, hoarding the secret collection of private knowledge that never sees the light of day, you need to get it out into the world in some form. And, and why do you need to get it out in the world? So that's, that's really how I see it coming alive. You, know, that's, you only know if you really learn something if you really you you've gained a true insight about the world rather than just uh you know some insight porn when you deploy it you use it you apply it in some way and it makes you more effective i mean effectiveness is ultimately the barometer of whether you are actually getting closer to reality or further from it (laughs)
0: and so what's the closest thing you said we do this today for people who do it today what does it look like it looks like having a podcast it looks like being active on Twitter um, and, and, you know, tweeting your thoughts, threading, contributing to these stuff. Like w- w- what are some examples of, of that today?
1: It's all those things. And, and, you know, people, I think people feel intuitively that these things are useful. You know, having a podcast, meeting people, having a blog, publishing your thoughts. We really in, in my, in our courses, um, David and I, we try to reframe content creation, not just as like a little side hobby, side gig, but as just central fundamental to your career. Um, everything from just refining your thinking and thinking more clearly to meeting people that you would never otherwise meet, expanding your network. Um, there's, there's just a whole series of benefits
0: and, and get into sort of the second brain. do you mean sort of like literally like, are we, is it like an external hard drive? Is that the way to think about it? Just if I put something there now, it's not my memory anymore, or how, how should we think about the,
1: the second brain? Yeah, so so to a certain extent, all those things, all your devices, all the SaaS things, the social media platforms, all the app, like everything, you could think of all that as your second brain, but the, the problem with with that is it's not centralized. You need one place. You know, if you can't go one place and search for what you know, I, I question whether you really know it, right? Um, and so we do work and and have people adopt a specific category of apps, which is note-taking apps, digital note-taking apps which is everything from Evernote is kind of the standard to um, kind of more recent ones like Notion, Bear. There's Simple Notes. There's the old ones made by the big tech companies, Microsoft OneNote, Apple Notes, uh, Google Keep. There's a couple dozen of them. And honestly, they're all fine. They all work.
0: You could imagine sort of, you know, a search engine for like, I think this is maybe what you're trying to build or what you're saying people should have. of You know, every conversation I have, Everything I read on the internet or in print, every sort of podcast I listen to, and so there's just an opportunity. There, you know, someone has to transcribe that. Someone has to get the like Kindle stuff onto centralized thing, and then someone has to, you know, you be able to highlight articles and put it into this. Thing. Like, how does it look across mediums?
1: That's a great analogy. It's like a personal search engine. You know, think about think about Google. People often say, like, well, why do I need to do this if I can just look up any answer on Google, right? But think about, you know, let's just take investing. If you go to Google right now and say investing advice, what is the quality of the investing advice that's going to come up on that first page? <laughs> you know, it's, it's just mediocre. Google's good at telling you the right answer for questions that have right answers. Um, and if you ask for anything like advice, wisdom, insights, it gives you really mediocre stuff. And, and kind of, you, you kind of pointed to this, people are already doing this work. You know, a study just came out, we're spending now more than 11 hours per day consuming media more than 11 hours per day we consume if you if you convert it all into into like data terms it's more than 30 gigabytes a day that we're already consuming right so you don't need to consume more. in fact you should consume way less and just spend that extra time that last one percent to just save to curate to collect and your returns are going to be so much greater
0: so what's the uh, what's the easiest way to start building a second brain
1: So that was actually one of the questions we got on Twitter. So this is good. Um, There's a few gateway drugs um, that I often hook people with (laughs) Um, because eventually, you know, you can save anything from any source in any place and it gets kind of overwhelming. One of the most common ones is saving Kindle highlights. That's one of, that was my gateway drug. You know, you're reading a Kindle book and you see it says popular highlights and you go, oh, I, I didn't know I could highlight. It's simple. You just put your finger down and make a highlight. And then you get to the end of that book, you know, you spent five or 10 or 15 hours reading this book. With another two minutes, you could just export all those highlights to one place and have a complete compendium of not just the books you've read, but the best parts of the best books you've read, right? The the level of compression is really extraordinary. Um, And then you just go from there. You go, oh, well, could I do this with online articles? You can, just use Instapaper. There's a free integration, Instapaper to Evernote that saves, as soon as you make a in Instapaper, it will save it to Evernote, right? Then you go to websites and then you use the Evernote Web Clipper or the Notion Web Clipper and you start saving parts of snippets of websites and you just go down. Every single kind of content, there is some way to save it and it's just a, a really rewarding thing to do.
0: Yeah. Do you record your conversations or how do you think about the future of uh, recording conversations?
1: Yeah, this is this is maybe the frontier. One of the most common questions I get, how do I save podcast excerpts, uh, audiobook experts, conversations, audio in general is huge. And there's no it's an exciting space because there's no default. There's no like clearly best way. There's some interesting tools like Otter. Otter AI is one that I really like. There was like a third party study of all the audio transcription services and Otter AI had had by a good margin, the highest accuracy it basically just speak into it and it gives you a transcript, which you can then one tap export to a notes app. Um, There's other things like Descript where you can, it not only creates an audio transcript, but then you can go back and by editing the text, the transcript, it changes the audio. So it's like a faster way of editing audio rather than going and listening to the entire thing. Yeah. A lot of interesting experiments, but I think so much consumption is going to audio that now there's intense interest in how to do that. So, I mean, someone is going to solve it, clearly.
0: Right. In one part of it, transcribing podcasts, the other thing is, you know, we're just recording all conversations so that they're searchable and sort of the cultural shift that would have to accompany that. We'd have to really believe in, in the second brain.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I do a form of this. You know, I have the default setting on Zoom. We're, we're talking on Zoom now where it saves every conversation by default that I initiate, right? Those get saved to a designated folder on my computer. Then I have Dropbox, which as soon as that file is saved, it's starting to sync that folder to the cloud, right? So what I do is right when I get off the call, if I want a transcript of any part of it, I'll just say, uh, "Gnome, who's my executive assistant, please make a transcript of this recording. He doesn't do it himself. That would be too time consuming. He sends it to a service called Rev, which charges. It's not super cheap. It's like a, a dollar a minute because it's, automated plus human transcription, but then at least it's accurate. And so they send me within a few hours, a complete virtually perfect transcript that I can then send to the person or or whatever.
0: Because it does cost some money. Why do you do that?
1: Those are in, in specific situations. So if let's say it's a conversation with my lawyer where I need like the exact wording or, uh, for a contract or, um, if we are working on a partnership with a a promotional partner, they need to know like very specifically it's, it's relatively rare because the cost really needs to come down on that.
0: A second brain is such an interesting concept. Have we thought about that in like, what's a historical analogy or, or inspiration for this? Is this something that, that has
1: been in the, you know, zeitgeist for, for a bit? So long. Yeah. I have a, a very extensive post on this on my blog where I I, I went into the history of note-taking and found, it's like this unknown history. I, I traced it through like, I think 12 or 13 countries going back like a thousand years or, or longer. The, the clearest historical precedent for this kind of note-taking, which is like more creative, like inspiration, inside ideas, is this thing called commonplace books. Yeah, it's this, this thing. It started like in the Enlightenment and then the Industrial Revolution Basically, intellectuals, uh, writers, academics, journalists, politicians, they would keep a little a little notebook, you know, the, kind of the equivalent of like a moleskin today, with just snippets of random stuff. You know, if they heard a Bible verse, a proverb, or a recipe, a, an analogy, a story, a historical fact, anything, they would just scribble it um and this is how they became prolific you know the great writers and the the speech makers they you don't just sit down that this idea of the blank canvas or you just create from nothing is totally absurd so the commonplace is the is the historical precedent and that word commonplace goes back to roman times where all the records of the senate or the court would have to be kept in a commonplace a centralized place and that's what i was just saying where i only think i think you can only call these software programs, your second brain, if it's in one place, if it's in a centralized program. Right. And what does sort
0: of that imply about the role of memory, right? In the last decade, some people have lamented that our memories are, are a lot worse than they used to be. Because uh, I'm curious, what, what do we misunderstand or, or not appreciate uh, as much about the role of, of memory? And, and what should it be going forward? Should I make peace that I, that I don't have a great memory because I have this second brain? Or how should I think about memory?
1: Oh, man. Yeah, memory. Memory is is deep. Um, my perspective on memory is that it's, it's simultaneously overrated and underrated. Well, let me start with underrated. It's underrated in that who you are is your memory. You know, like if I just pressed a button and erased your memory, you had no past, no sense of your history, your family, your experiences. You, you would, you know, you would just be nothing. You would be a blank slate. Like your identity is fundamentally rooted in your memory. And so having access to those things is like, it's really crazy to me how people just kind of let things come in one year and out the other, you know, with books, like imagine reading a book five or 10 hours thinking about it, all that intellectual effort. If you ask the average person, oh, that great book you read last year, can you tell me what it was about? What were the five main points? What were the takeaways? They, they usually can't tell you. It's like at most a vague summary, right? And people spend, like I said, eleven hours a day and then spend virtually zero time preserving any of that knowledge for future reference and it's just crazy that we we undervalue um, our day to- day experiences like that, um, but then weirdly, at the same time it's overrated where it's funny I have this this Twitter beef, which is the second brainers versus the first brainers, I don't know if you've seen that.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. say more
1: so. <laughs> Yeah, people will keep asking me things like, um, what do you think about memorization strategies? You know, like memory palaces and spaced repetition. There's a whole, I have a list here somewhere of all of these strategies. And not only do I not recommend them, I think they're the exact wrong direction. You know, my my whole work is trying to get as much information from carbon-based life forms into silicon. And all these memorization strategies are trying to get it from silicon into carbon. (laughs) <laughs> and i just think it's misguided that's not what human brains are for you know it it's it's like it's like that paul bunyan thing you know yeah you can cut trees you know and if you try really really hard you might be able to cut one or two trees faster than a machine but then you're going to be exhausted and dead and it's like that with computers why compete against a machine that can remember an infinite amount of information perfectly forever like we should just completely cede that territory completely outsource as absolute much as possible from our memories onto computers and focus on ideation, creation, innovation, conversation, all these things. If you had to steel man their argument, what would you say? Yeah. The steel man is that you need something in memory, right? <laughs> if there's nothing in in the Ram, in the, the working process, you can't do much. And that is true. But that, sort of threshold is getting lower all the time, all the time. And, and, and to the point where it's negligible almost, you know, when I, I notice this, when I talk to, to leaders, you know, CEOs, executives, entrepreneurs, like really successful people, it's really remarkable how little they know often, like they're, they really specific facts, details, the current status of the projects, like they're really fine grained things. They're really overseeing a network You know, they're overseeing an organism that is much greater than them and they're sort of at the helm Uh, and that's what gives, that allows them to have the perspective to actually be leaders is they're not down there in the, in the weeds. Not, not a great steel man, but yeah.
0: (laughs) It is interesting. There's sort of this increasing idea that there's like people as figureheads and then everyone underneath them just sort of does all the work, but that the figureheads have an important role and the question is sort of over time, will that figurehead, be more important or, or less important. And I think it's sort of uh, right now it's, it's important because it sort of plays on like, they need to be likable. They need to be like be able to communicate well. They sort of play into all sort of human. Uh, like if you talk about like a, someone for president, they can't be small because humans can't see a small person lead it. Like they play on sort of our weaknesses. H- how do you see that evolving
1: over time? Yeah. I, so here's my perspective on this is those, whether you call them figureheads or leaders or whatever, That role is as important as ever, but it's being democratized. You know, like think about in the past to have a network at your disposal. Like what would that mean, you know, more than 30 or 40 years ago, that meant you had to be the CEO of a company, the leader of a country or the leader of a religion, right? Now it's like, we are all, each of us, really at the head of the network. If you consider, you know, each of your apps, your social media networks, your platforms, your SaaS services, and other people, you know, collaborators, contractors, assistants, all those, those constitute a network. And, and this is kind of like my thesis is that the average human life is now too complex to be managed by an average human brain. It's like our brains, you know, they grew and they grew through countless millennia then they hit the edge of our skulls they can't really grow fast enough anymore but the complexity of our life and the size of our life has continued to expand ever faster and so we need this network you need like a team practically just to just to have a, a normal life and also
0: that has because life's gotten more and more complex more information so the role of mental models seems to be more and more important to make sense of everything that's coming in, but then also the ability to stand outside of the mental models sort of meta way and analyze which ones are working. When do they need to change? Which ones need to be retired? How would you add or edit that?
1: Yeah. I would just describe that as like a, you have to keep going to higher order knowledge, right? As the machines eat, they always eat the bottom. They eat the more codified, more standardized, more legible knowledge You know, you can see that as a threat and try to compete with them at that level, but they're always going to win. So you have to step up. What is the next level of abstraction? And that used to be only required of, you know, great leaders. Now it's required of even the recent college grad, you know?
0: Do you think it's as simplistic in the future that there's sort of the line, you're either above the API or below the API, you're either telling a robot what to do or it's telling you what to do?
1: That's definitely an oversimplification, but I mean, there's some truth to it, Right. I think probably that line is more like multidimensional. There's more sides to it. You know, there's ways in which I'm under the API. I have this this service clarity where people schedule calls with me. And it it sometimes feels a little bit like I'm taking orders. You know, people go on there. They see my profile. They schedule a call. It gets scheduled all without my involvement. And I wake up in the morning and realize I have a call.
0: (laughs) Yeah. What else do you understand about productivity that other people you know, if you were like, had only, you know, 10 minutes or 20 minutes with somebody and you had to give them these core principles about how, you know, that would help them make them much more productive in their life. What, what might you share with them that you think they wouldn't get elsewhere, perhaps it's of common literature.
1: I would say what I said towards the beginning, which is that your product, everything in your productivity is a symptom. It's a symptom of something happening deeper in your life. And it's a symptom, almost always, in some way, of something happening at the somatic, emotional, intuitive level. And I, I just keep tracing that deeper and deeper. What What I'm really into now is really looking at trauma. Um, I just read this book that has completely blown my mind. It's called The Body Keeps the Score and it's amazing because you know he's talking about trauma and you th- you think okay you know, like i understand trauma it's like car accidents it's being abused it's be- like natural disasters it's like really really intense stuff and, but that's acute trauma that's a sp- that's a specific kind of trauma there's something else and maybe trauma isn't even the best word but just from living the day to day life something accumulates some sort of psychic wound or some sort of psychic baggage Um, And there are ways really practical ways. This is, this is like my message that are not weird. They're a little bit weird, but you know, that are very well understood and scientifically based of discharging and off gassing that accumulation of whatever it is that will just have profound impacts, not just on your productivity, but just on everything.
0: So let's say more about like, where does, like, I've been interested in trying to study evolutionary biology recently to try to make sense of some emotions as to know, you know, which ones to listen to, which ones not to listen to, when to listen and when not to, like, how, how do you explain and make sense of them? Maybe that's fruitless. Maybe, maybe that's helpful. Say more about trauma. Like wh- where does it come from? How, how do we explain it from a biological or evolutionary perspective? And what do we do about it?
1: Yeah. So what I'm, what I'm learning and I'm cross-referencing here, just the reading of the past month or two with my experiences. And the the thing that really caught me with this reading is that virtually every productivity challenge or challenge at work, let's say that people come to me with, you know, often they want me to fix it. They want a solution can be traced to a symptom of trauma. Like as one example, being easily distracted, right? There's really interesting research now that ADHD, the collection of things we call ADHD is a, is closely linked to trauma. It's a, it's dissociation right? Something happened. There was just some situation in your childhood you wanted to escape from. Children can't escape, especially if the caregivers are the ones, you know, doing the, the, the thing. Um, and so they just leave, they leave their body. But the fascinating thing that I just discovered is that hyper focus. So the opposite, the ability to, ze- to zero in, zoom in on something and not get distracted is equally a symptom of trauma. It's just another kind of dissociation. And this has made me realize like high performers, you know, who are the people who listen to your podcast, my customers, people who are extremely capable, really good at producing results. They are, I mean, maybe even more like, I mean, I mean, they have trauma. Like what often happens is the response to the trauma is your manager, the, the sort of executive function in your head gets very, very strong right? You learn to take charge, to make things happen, to be bold, to be aggressive. And that propels you through success in life. And yet you reach a point, I know I've reached this point, uh, at some point where it's not enough, you're looking for something deeper. And that, that, that inner critic, that executive function starts to just drive you into the ground and make you miserable. And that's what people, what, what has people, often very successful people start seeking things like meditation and mindfulness and yoga and all these things.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, there's this famous uh, Conan O'Brien quote where he, he says, uh, "If a therapist is going to make me less funny, I don't want to go to a therapist." You know, <laughs> so it's a, another spinoff of that is like, if you're going to give up the chip off your shoulder, maybe wait until you're a billionaire first or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, what, what you, is there truth to that? Like, in, in a certain sense of like, the more you deal with your trauma, the less you, you'll need to prove something. I, I, how do you think about ambition and that? Because you, you you were saying that people who are very ambitious have even more trauma. <laughs> and so what do you think for people who say, Hey, if I heal my trauma, will I be less you know, productive or ambitious? What do you say there?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a huge fear. I had that fear. You know, I, I definitely for a long time had something to prove, still have something to prove. Um, and it's a fantastic kind of engine of motivation. Um, I just read something from one of the bloggers I, I follow, uh, Sarah Constantine where she wrote, she hadn't published anything in a while. And then she published this post and towards the end was one of the most remarkable comments I've ever, or or PSs I've ever seen on a piece of writing online. She basically said just very briefly to my longtime readers, um, I haven't been publishing much and I really won't be publishing much going forward. And the reason is I stopped eating carbohydrates and it unexpectedly stopped all my mental suffering. And now I have no reason to write. (laughs) 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 <laughs> that's amazing and she, she's such a like a a rational down-to-earth person that isn't prone to saying stuff like that that you're just I was just like for a whole day I was like almost like depressed I'm like oh my god is this the price I'm gonna have to pay for for you know healing myself but from what I've seen and I'm still exploring this I think you get to keep your superpowers I think that the skills and the knowledge you develop from that they stick around but the key difference is they become your choice rather than a compulsion right you choose to deploy that skill or that knowledge when it suits you rather than it choosing you and rather than it forcing you to do things
0: to say more about how you know you've read this in the last few months how that's changed your understanding of how to be more productive or how it changes how you view productivity in a micro sense or a macro sense or what that means for you going forward in your work?
1: Yeah, and, and this is very much my my edge right now is really making personal growth not like a little fun side hobby of my work, uh, which it's always been. It's been just like a sort of the behind the scenes stuff, the little side stuff. Um, but then you know, looking at my at my blog analytics, which is always tells the truth, <laughs> and seeing that my very few personal growth posts you know, on different things, on experiences I've had, on courses I've taken, on different treatments or modalities I've tried that they outrank my productivity stuff, you know? And, I'm, and even amidst a crowd that is so productivity obsessed, I'm, I'm really considering what it would look like to pivot into that hard and to, I don't know, be trained in some of these modalities or at least host them or refer people to them because I'm, I'm just so committed to the root getting, I always need to go to the root and it seems like this stuff is really much closer to the root than like, how do you, how do you check your email or how, which to do app do you use? You know?
0: (laughs) But is it superhuman or is it cheap? So so unpack what you mean by modalities for the audience.
1: Yeah. So in this book, he very helpfully breaks it down. There's essentially three ways. There's three groups. Um, One is, is essentially talking so there's like, um, talk therapy is, this is obviously the, the clear one, but all sorts of like cognitive mental model, rationality based conceptual things. Um, there's courses like this, like landmark is one, um, coaching is often this deconstructing kind of the, the way you're thinking. Uh, and those are, those are wonderful. That's often where people start, but it's conceptual and the mind can never convince the body really of anything. Right. Um, the second group is essentially chemical. So it's psychedelics, it's mushrooms, it's psilocybin, it's all those things, or alternatively, um, medication, right? Also hugely effective. Like each one of these is equally important, right? No, no one of them is correct or the best. Um, but the third one is, is by far the least known. And I think in some ways could be the most powerful. And it's body-based, it's somatic. So it's essentially just it's like kind of going to the firmware. It's like going to the lowest level and changing your basic bodily functions. And that includes everything from breath work. Uh, It includes like massage and and certain kinds of body work, um, Reiki um, and also anger work, uh, which is this whole, this whole realm of like acting out the same situation where you were traumatized, but turning yourself from a victim into like actually standing up for yourself and sort of rewriting the story of what happened.
0: Yeah. And so which of those have you taken up since, since reading or, or, or would recommend to others?
1: Like anger. what? Anger what work.
0: Unpack. What, what is anger work? What does that look
1: like? And, and what has that changed for you? So this was a course I took about a month ago. And it's really about first, there's a conceptual side, which is anger is the, maybe the most stigmatized feeling in our culture right there's n- almost no appropriate place to express anger maybe like boxing or something and we practice this in the course i've now adopted it once a week on thursdays i go to our extra bedroom and i have a tennis racket and a cushion and for like 10 minutes i just wail on this cushion and i just let it all out it's like kind of like primal scream a lot of people have heard about this this kind of this realm Um, and this this is a thing it's really there's a woman in in san francisco who works with clients on this she has a whole anger center where you just go and like break stuff and hit stuff and just let it out and what it does is it just you know anger anything you repress has negative impact anything every emotion is is appropriate is okay is acceptable to have it just needs to be like like i said expressed and and let go And so when I do it, um, I just feel so at peace. I feel more sort of connected, like all parts are in alignment. You know, really what anger gives you, like if you want to boil it down, is clarity and determination. When you allow that anger to really just come out, And you, afterwards they have you stand with your arms open, like in a, in a posture of victory, like you're supposed to internalize this, this victory feeling, the clarity and determination I have for my work is just unreal. It's, it's like a, it's like the best drug (laughs) Wow! for someone who's listening and wants to
0: try some of that right now without signing up to a class or before doing that, what, what might
1: you recommend? That's something I'm trying to, to find out because you need a container right? Don't just go hitting random stuff. I don't know. I don't know where the safety boundaries are. I don't know, um, how, like how to avoid being re-traumatized or making it into like reliving the story.
0: So you were saying earlier, you know, when, when people like, what is sort of the evolutionary reason of why people would have trauma? (laughs) Like why would it make sense that that trauma would help us survive? It's basically, (sighs) or
1: reproduce. Yeah, totally. It, it really is the training of our nervous system. You know, our nervous system among all animals is the most malleable. We can grow up in any culture, any situation, any language, and we just have our, our nervous system wired. Um, and so the, the, one of the main traits of trauma is hypervigilance, right? You develop this, this just hyperattentiveness to any source of danger, any, any threat, uh, which you can you can imagine how that's evolutionarily advantageous, right? You're just on guard. The problem is being hypervigilant makes it hard to enjoy life, right? It's hard to get close to people when you're constantly wondering if they're going to screw you over. It's hard to be intimate with someone. It's hard to um, be vulnerable and build trust with a group. That phenomenon of hypervigilance has really been profound for me.
0: It is interesting. What makes a second brain, what I've been really interested in is the idea of sort of a global brain or collective brain or sort of like wiki, you know, wiki style, you know, it's sort of a shame that, you know, we're having a conversation and and maybe Dave Perrell having a conversation on a similar topic with somebody else that sort of builds on some of the points we're making. And, you know, someone's written about this and someone else is having a podcast and someone else is tweeting. And it's a shame that we're all not building off of each other all the time in, in some way and uh twitter is some manifestation of that when you quote tweet other people and sort of like github for thinking in in some ways but i wonder if we will get much better at sort of cross you know interlinking ideas and building on top of them and you know co-curating together because it seems like there's just a lot of inefficient work how do you sort of think about that idea
1: yeah i get this i get this a lot right this is <clears throat> as soon as you're talking as, as you start talking about more brains then you suddenly have more and more and more brains and you have collective brains and global brains and universal brains. So on the one hand, I'm really focused on the individual. It's like it's hard enough to do this for one single person <laughs> and, and have one person adopt these, th- this set of tools and skills and mindsets. I'm a little bit uh, intimidated, honestly, by what it would mean to do this w- collectively at scale. Um, I think a lot of it is, it just happens naturally through culture, through social media, through all these things. But I think that the general trend is that, you know, what is a brain? We think of a brain as like this particular shaped organ that has specific structures, but I think we can have a new definition of a brain, which is just any place where intelligence is applied, right? That is, that is a node that, that is a, that is a brain. And there's more and more of them, right? Like software programs are now like little brains. They can apply a certain kind of intelligence. Communities are brains. Um, you know, any kind of even notebook or physical tools a brain. So I think we're we're starting to see this like just proliferation of different kinds of intelligence and ways that intelligence can be applied. And I mean, we can get into some more sort of sci-fi kind of out there ideas, but. I'm really pretty focused on like the, like almost like the boring practical application of one knowledge worker adopting a note-taking tool. Like it's, it's really kind of, it's not that futuristic and sci-fi when you, when you put it that way, you know?
0: Totally. But but humor me on some of the sci-fi stuff, just because I know you have an interest in in sci-fi. What are you most excited about versus what do you think is, you know, not, not realistic or not, or not going to happen in this sort of realm?
1: the period of time where machines can do human work and human and machines can decide what work needs to be done is way bigger than people think, right? Like pretty much now we're at a point where, where machines can do much of what we consider human work. But I think there's going to be hundreds of years before they are taking the true decision-making creative, innovative roles. And that's why I think really the, the skill to be mastered now is the, is the the man machine hybrid? You know, my this this is all very self serving, by the way. Like my course in book is one of the ways, but there's there's many others. People are under investing in it. You know, they're looking for they're looking they're they're expecting to be wholesale replaced by a machine, and that's just not going to happen. It's going to be the slow, gradual, rolling process um, that may never end. You know, maybe we'll we'll it, there's no top to it, and that's that's a more I think optimistic view of the future as well. Totally. And so what future books could you see yourself
0: writing or, or your future sort of threads that you really want to want to pull on
1: topic wise? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have my, the the building a second brain book should come out in the next year or two. Um, The one after that is going to be a book on the theory of constraints. TOC is the greatest source of like powerful thinking um, that people don't know about it's it's like opening a an old ancient you know text that's full of not just timeless wisdom but like really practical modern things that i discovered i discovered it a few years ago um i was working for i was doing a project for a consulting firm in san francisco and they wanted me to study this thing called the theory of constraints and i looked into it i'm like this really this 1970s manufacturing ideology um this was a, a software company in san francisco and so I went to Australia uh, and embedded for, for a week with this company called WiseTech. Um, WiseTech was founded by two TOC consultants. Um, they had a billion-dollar exit, I think, in like 2016. They were like the, the biggest exit, I think, in software since Atlassian in Australia. So wildly successful company. They handle um, freight forwarding, like shipping logistics, for like 90% of Australian and New Zealand shipping. So, he, he, you know, really big company. Um, but anyway, the theory of constraints was, was basically this, this way of thinking about systems. It's, it, it was applied first to manufacturing, but it's not about manufacturing. It's about systems, but the, it's different. Like so much systems thinking it's like really vague, you know, like, like so much systems thinking it's like complexity science and, and they go complexity. It's too complex for you to understand. So don't even try. And Goldret, who was the, this Israeli, um, physicist who invented the theory of constraints said any comp- the more complex a system the simpler it is because no complex system can have more than one or two driving forces if it did it would fall apart and it was just this this radical approach um and and uh, he he applied the theory of constraints first to manufacturing later to healthcare later to the military and eventually to software development and actually this is this is getting deep now but If you look at the roots of modern software development, if you look at the roots of Agile, like really where it came from, the historical predecessor, it's the theory of constraints. It's almost like the secret, like, like common ancestor of all these software methodologies. And it, it, it looks at reality at a deeper level in terms of systems. Um, And I've just found it tremendously insightful.
0: And so where should we be applying more
1: constraints to our lives? So the, 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 the very basic idea is that any complex system, so let's take your life, <laughs> has one constraint, right? If you think of a hose, right? You know, a hose may have many kind of tight points. There may be like a kink over here and then a twist over here and then a little something over here. But just logically, one of those is going to be the tightest, right? Like one bo- out of the many bottlenecks in a system, one just has to be the tightest bottleneck, the tightest constraint. And his basic idea, which is simultaneously common sense and radical, is that the the output of the entire system is limited by the bottleneck, right? So if you have a hose, more water can't come out of the end of the hose than can go through that bottleneck, right? The tightest constraint is the capacity of the system, which means you have to focus on the constraint. And nothing else matters in fact focusing anywhere else makes it worse and it's such a it's such an insanely simple approach to a complex system so in your life what is the bottleneck assuming you have one bottleneck do you know what it is and how does your thinking change knowing that the only way to make an improvement is to focus there so like what, what's an example that might make, make it come alive for listeners? Sure. So with a physical flow, like a hose or a factory, it's kind of simple, right? You just like walk and count how many things are going through the, the line with something like a life. It's a bit more complex, right? And what he found is it always comes down to an assumption. There's a logical assumption that is constraining usually your perception, your view of the world. And this is what coaching does, right? And, and this is why it's, it's so interesting. Coaching can start anywhere, You know, you can start talking about your relationships or your health or your finances or your life goals or anything. If it's, if the coach is good, they will trace it down lower and lower to the root. And so, you know, something fundamental, like let's apply it to business. One of the most common assumptions is speed versus quality, right? Like, like most business people, many, many people with companies, they have this basic assumption. It's so basic. It might not even sound like an assumption that you can either do it. Well, or you can do it fast, and if you want to do it faster, you have to do it less well. And if you want to do it more well, you have to do it less fast. Right? That's just not true. Like uh, you can probably think of examples. It's not true, right?
0: Well, I was thinking of a sort of different example, which is if you're focused on the bottlenecks versus like when is it bottlenecks versus doubling down on your strengths in terms of like you know, let's say I'm this amazing developer, amazing communicator, amazing mathematician. And bottleneck is, I don't know, it's hard for me to work with people. I don't know, I have all sorts of weaknesses that are holding me back. But if I was the world-class mathematician or communicator or whatever, I could just get away with it. Or maybe that's a bad example. Or I could hire, bring people on. You know, like when when do you focus on the constraints or the bottlenecks? I don't know if this is on the same thread of what you're saying versus just become the best at what you're doing so you have all the leverage.
1: Yeah. So here's the the great part is the, the idea of a bottleneck only makes sense in relation to a goal right? Like if you say your goal is to make as much money as possible, that's going to point to a certain bottleneck. It might be like, I don't know how much you can charge per hour or the price of your product or whatever. But then if you say, uh, my goal is quality of relationships, then suddenly you have a completely different bottleneck. So it can be applied to any goal. Like let's say your goal is to double down on your strengths, right? Your goal is to become the best mathematician in the world. Then the question would become, What is the bottleneck on you becoming the best mathematician in the world? And it could be something like your ability to work with others. I mean, that's actually probably likely, you know. Maybe you can't, your pure intellectual capacity can't go beyond a certain point until you learn to collaborate. Um, Or it could be something completely different. I think what, what this theory gives you is just hope. Hope that you can just trace whatever the situation is down to a root and just focus on that route. Whereas so much of thinking of modern complexity, you just lose hope. Like, well, everything depends on everything else. Every variable depends on every other variable. And you just go, Oh, forget it.
0: Well, let me ask you, because I'm trying to think for myself, if it was trying to make as much money as possible, what would your bottleneck be
1: there? It would be, that would be a coaching, a coaching call. And, and, and TOC consultants are coaches. They just keep asking a series of questions and i'm really into coaching too so i don't know if you want to go down that rabbit hole but oh man this is a whole other thing
0: <laughs> on uh, the coaching side I'm, I'm curious what what makes a you know uniquely
1: great coach versus just a, a good or fine coach or yeah i'm curious where your spark was going yeah so uh, this is actually also the course i just did a month ago the method we were learning was called Well, it was, it was essentially a coaching methodology. It was how to talk to anyone and through a series of open-ended questions, get to the root of what is constraining them in their life. Um, And the key part, the, the methodology is called view, V I E W. But the basic technique is questions that begin with how and what, and this is, this is really crazy. Like you think it can't be that simple. But the thing is, like, if you listen to how people ask questions, like in, in good conversation, you know, they'll often say, "Do you or don't you?" That provo- provokes a yes or no answer. Or they ask, "Are you or aren't you?" Uh, or "Is or isn't?" That also produces a yes or no answer. Or they ask, "Why?" But even "why" is kind of a lazy question. If you think about it; you can just ask, "Why? Why? Why? Why?" Fill in the blank, whatever they just said. And "why" questions just have them defend themselves. They go, oh, because da 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 But if you, if you look at how or what questions, there's no yes or no answer. You know, if I say, how do you see the relationship between X or Y? You know, there's no way for you to answer that yes, no, or defend yourself. You just have to actually think and, and answer that. Uh, let's, let's say, how do you tell the difference between X and Y? Or how do you know? Or what is the biggest reason to do that? If you just said you wanted to do something there, there really is a, a series of questions you can ask and you'll get very quickly within five or 10 minutes to something that is affecting them across their entire life. What was an example of what that could look like? Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you an example for me. Um, we have follow-up calls where we coach each other and I was having this problem where I just felt so time scarce. I was like, You know, I have certain days and times set aside for calls, but I feel like there's more calls than I can ever do. And I'm stuck in meetings like all day long and I have no time to write, no time to focus. I was just going on and on. And uh, one of the the other people, one of the graduates kind of led me through a series of questions and I forget the particular sequence, but what I got to was that I don't value my own time. And so here's the cycle is I don't value my own time because I have a pattern, really, which is an, a, a somatic pattern, which is, you know, the, the, the first four or five years of being self-employed, I was just broke every single month trying to pay the rent, every project hand-to-mouth, right? And so I internalized this thing of throwing my time at things, right? If someone wanted to hire me for, like, pennies, I would just spend all the time in the world. If someone wanted me to fly to the other side of the country to speak at an event and didn't want to pay me, okay, fine, I'll do it. Right. It's like to succeed. I felt like I had to lower my own valuation of my time a few years later. Now that I, you know, I don't have to do that. The pattern is repeating. So what do I do? I don't value my own time. I give it away. So some random person says, Oh, can I meet with you for an hour? I say yes, because I don't value my time. So I give it to them. But then once the call is finished, I resent them. And I resent all the people that I've scheduled calls with, even though I'm saying I'm the one saying yes. And the pattern just keeps repeating itself. Right. And when I felt like it took me a few minutes, but when I felt the, the words came out of my mouth, it was like my body speaking. I don't value my own time. It was like, you know, when something just like hits you in the chest, it's like an emotional thing. I was like, shit, I'm the one that's been creating this. It's not no one else's fault but mine. <laughs> so what do you what do you do about that? It can be different things. I mean... The cool thing about doing that in a group is there, there is something about, and I I really want to research this, being vulnerable in a group that has a, a certain quality of shared attention for some reason is, is inherently healing. Like, I don't know, I don't know how this can work, but there, there, it's almost like our deep neural structures can be changed in a moment. Um, as long as we have a group of people who accept us and love us and, and have empathy toward us, just seeing us, there's something about being seen, being truly seen. Um, so in that case, you know, I didn't, I didn't have to go like implement it and develop a strategic plan. I just looked at my calendar and I just made a decision right in that moment to not do that anymore. And it's, it's held. It's been a few weeks.
0: Yeah, it is interesting. You know, I sort of have this, it, 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 this segue into broader conversation of just reality and making sense of things in general. You, uh, and you, I know you went on a podcast recently called Design Your Own Reality. The, you know, I have a sort of pet theory that the sort of need to be seen or understood has risen as our sort of, we have all gone into our own realities. And what I mean by that is, or, or more so than we have, what I mean by that is you, know, you know, Walter Cronkite used to tell us what was happening in the world and then we would all have the same sense of what was happening and then multiple channels and then the internet. And now we all are in our own sort of, like no one person gets the same information uh, data, and so they're all operating under different, you know, data and making different interpretations from it. And so the need to be seen and understood is just recognized, sort of that you're not going crazy, <laughs> that you're not crazy. And so, how do you think about uh, reality, uh, truth, uh, meaning in a world where we are all seeing, you know, different data?
1: Yeah, man, it's a big, it's a big thing. I, th- I think the way I see that is. It's like, okay, yeah, we're all descending each into our own filter, uh, deeper, more and more siloed all the time. But I don't see it as completely negative because I think the value of people who can traverse those silos is getting higher and higher, right? The the bridge makers, the bridge builders, like bridge making used to be like between entire countries, you know, from the United States to Kenya, that was this, this chasm that had to be bridged. Now it's like my next door neighbor has a fundamentally different view of the world. And so I think the the returns of being all the skills involved in that from seeing things, you know, in a different way, to being able to empathize, to being able to connect with people's shared humanity, all these much more intuitive, emotional, embodied senses, far from being devalued, because we're spending so much time online, they're being more valued because that's, that's what allows us to overcome the silos. It's the only thing that allows us to overcome the silos. Totally.
0: How do you expect that will change, if at all, moving forward?
1: Seems like it's going to continue. Seems like there's going to be a combination of breaking points. Hope they're not too violent. Hope it's not too catastrophic. But, I mean, in history, there's always breaking points. Um, I think those breaking points are often accompanied by, by a pendulum, um, I really see history as, as pendula, which hopefully takes us in a different direction, rebalances itself, recalibrates. Um, I really see my work as, you know, th- this, this ability to have a reality distortion field, which people talk about to create your own reality has been framed as a negative. Like, oh yeah, certain nefarious politicians and, you know, dictators and bad media conglomerates are doing it. I kind of see building a second brain as giving everyone that ability. You know, when you can, when you can systematically collect raw material, stories, imagery, you know, archetypes, all this like deep stuff, um, you can reconstitute it into new content, new stories, new experiences, and deploy that at scale through the internet. You become a little, a little world builder, a little reality creator. Um, I, I kind of see myself as an arms dealer for smart people, an arms dealer for the internet, just, just handing out the, the weapons, and I guess I believe that, that that's on balance that's going to make the world better because I, I do think people are fundamentally good on balance if capabilities are spread around democratically that I mean this, this is I think the history of technology. it tends toward the good, and I hope that continues. So
0: there's a second brain, and we mostly focus on sort of information and knowledge. I'm curious how you think about uh, emotions the role of emotions in the second brain is it like a second heart or like or, or a second brain that stores emotions or memories in an interesting way that helps us you know, reconstitute or reconfigure meaning in some way how, how do you think about that
1: yeah in fact i think you you can view technology as the extension of each one each and every one of our capabilities and senses you know all the physical tools are extensions of our hands um all our transportation is extensions of our feet are um each one of our senses has their own visual extensions auditory extensions i just saw a um a, my my wife teaches an online course on how to apply for the fulbright fellowship so she sees all these applications for research and she just saw this one that was a, a woman that is studying the digitization of smells right because that that's the one sense maybe along with taste that can't be you know easily digitized and transported across the earth is smell and and uh, and taste I think the mind is now joining that group with the internet it's like almost late to the party <laughs>
0: wow. yeah that's really interesting. How does that make us think about or how does that a second brain start of change the idea of what is a self
1: yeah this is, this is something I'm really interested in these days. Um, I think it clearly means the self has to be redefined. I just saw this uh, this paper or this study where The part of your brain that, that essentially maps where the limits of your body are, right? So like, where does your shoulder end? Where, where does your hand end? I forget what the part of the brain is called. Um, I can send you the link afterwards, but uh, when you use a tool, so you pick up a hammer or a screwdriver and then you use it to do something, that part of the brain remaps to include the tool. And you can, you can probably tell this, like, you know, when you have a screwdriver and you're like reaching around something where you can't even see, you can poke and you can touch as if that's your hand. It's very natural for that sense of self to be extended. I think it's now being massively expanded across the globe, basically. And I think it does make sense to consider, you know, what's stored on Google servers, all the different kinds of data about you as part of yourself, what's stored on Evernote is part of yourself, what's stored in your email is part of yourself. Um, And this is why, by the way, this cognitive extension, this like using the internet is so closely tied to personal growth. It's not an accident that they're tied. Every, er, if you look back, every advancement of technology is accompanied by a a revolution in personal growth. You know, like the hippie revolution was in the sixties and seventies, right? As technology was taking off in Silicon Valley. That's not an accident, right? When, when you have to expand your sense of self, the previous self in a sense dies, ego death you have to then have a new concept of self and technology is now driving that much technology is now doing what the the pace of innovation that religion used to do over thousands of years is now happening every few years.
0: And so what does that mean for the role that religion used to play? Has that, does that get unbundled or, or what happens that need that religion fills? How do we get it elsewhere or do we not get it?
1: I think religion becomes our most important teacher. I mean, you see this. I just saw on Twitter, someone was like, some tech leader was like, in my whole life, I've never seen people my age and who are, um, you know, secular like me as open to religion as they are now. There's Jordan Peterson and all his people. I know they're super controversial, but they're borrowing useful things from religion. There are, I just heard about secular or atheist Christians who use all the, the things of Christianity minus that one little belief that, that Jesus was God, um, religion is becoming this like research, this like historical research lab. Um, and this is one reason I just posted two things about public libraries. Um, one of them is a case study. We just did a big project the past year with a, it's actually the public library across the street from Trump's golf course in um, Palm beach, Florida. Um, which was funny, but libraries are these like temples of knowledge. That's what they are. You go in and you venerate and you worship and you acquire and you commune with knowledge. And so part of my, my writing was, was really strongly advocating, for, you know, people have this idea we don't need libraries, everything is on the, on the internet, that couldn't be farther from the truth. Uh, we need to support libraries, we need to continue investing in them. Um, but that's one example where like, you know, a sort of secular religion, I think is forming around stuff like insight and knowledge.
0: So say more, what is the role of the library in the future? What is the role of the librarian in the future? And uh, how does
1: that evolve over time? I think libraries are just so perfectly positioned. You know, there's more than 100,000 libraries in the United States. Every little community you think about, you know, places that the internet has barely begun to, to change. Places where new ideas don't have many ways to enter. Right? It's, it's like this incredibly embedded institution People trust librarians more than any profession except nurses. You know, um, they, they, don't, they haven't been casualties of the information war. You know, no one thinks library, you know, librarians are on the, the right or the left or are biased. They really, and, and it's true. They really are unbiased. They want all um, sides of the debate to be heard. That's, that's their, their goal. So I think they're just going to become important to socialize this new way of living. You know, this new internet-centric, digital nomad, very um, online uh, way of living, which I think is going to continue to increase. Um, libraries are going to become sort of these, like, digital nomad embassies.
0: <laughs> How is it, libraries? Do they, you know, they store uh, memory, or, you know, collective memory. I mean, one thing you said before this call is that memory is paradoxically low-value, yet essential to our identity.
1: Talk a little bit about, about that. Yeah, you know, so... Half my post is us getting to know this, this library system. We touched down, we spent a whole day touring two or three branches, um, of this network. And it's funny because we, I thought I was a pretty library loyal person. Like I go to libraries quite often. And yet what we were introduced to was this like very technologically savvy, you know, they have talking books, books on tape, they have eBooks, they have audio books growing like crazy. Um, they, they check out internet wifi hotspots for people who are traveling or who don't have wifi. Um, the they're very, you know, uh, website centric, they have announcements, they have online groups, all these things. And I think it's just, and it's funny, I, I sent that post to different librarians that I know on Twitter to get feedback. And they were like, duh, like this has been going on forever. Like people just don't know. We're just, and it's funny, the people who least know about this are the techies who only access things online and don't go into libraries. Normal quote unquote normies know about the services that the library offers. It's this really weird inversion where the most techie people are the the least uh, in favor of libraries in some cases because they just don't know that they, they have adapted to the modern age.
0: Say a little bit more about what you understand about how people construct meaning or how they have historically as it relates to how they will in the future in a second brain uh, world and and largely digital world. Like how how do you think about meaning Meaning making meaning storing?
1: Yeah, I think it's, it's definitely a a job that's devolving to the individuals. Um, Maybe 95% of meaning used to just be provided by your, your local neighborhood institutions. Now it's maybe like 40%, 30%. I don't know. That is introducing a cognitive load. When I talk about the complexity of a human life, it's not just that we're like being more complex. You know, many people are living just superficially the same kind of kind of life that their, their, their parents or their grandparents lived. The issue is that so much of the default support structure is just gone right? So so, so to just have this normal job in a normal neighborhood and take your kids to soccer practice and do just the most kind of average things um, just require now more invention and improvisation. They actually require you to choose a way to do that. Um, And I think that's well understood. But I think the thing with meaning making is like, it's almost entirely social. In fact, knowledge is almost entirely social to a degree that we've made huge advancements, we're still discovering, right? I I think it's kind of like, they say like, you know, 90% of communication is body language and that percentage keeps going up. <laughs> um, I think it's that way with knowledge where we're soon going to discover like 90%, 95% of the way people acquire genuine new knowledge is just looking at the people around them. They look at what what, what other people are doing and they see how it's working for them. Um, and that means, you know, knowledge creation and sort of distribution is not so much about starting a podcast or having a better Twitter account or a blog, as, as a, important as those things are, it's about packaging. And, and I'm seeing this with the book publishing process. The level of simplicity that I have to get my ideas to, to have a publisher even be interested in looking at it is awe-inspiring. I mean, it's crazy. It's like you really have to boil things down to like a something a fifth grader would understand. And that is what publishers know. People are, are able to assimilate, that is what is going to go in the bookstores and the libraries and the airports. And I'm, you know, people like you and I were so, we don't realize the bubble we're in. I think a lot of the time we're like, you know, five bubbles deep into the, the hyper intellectual insight driven kind of people. And so it's, it's been a lot of work for me just kind of exiting that and, really learning how it is that most of the population learns new things and especially things that affect your day-to-day life, right? Like to actually have a, someone take digital notes throughout their day is like a pretty huge behavior change. That is, is not, a, is not a small thing to ask.
0: You know, your blog is called Praxis. And so what does Praxis mean again? It's talking about learning, right?
1: It's kind of just the, the, the technical side or the practice of the actual implementation.
0: What do you think you, you know, you create courses. What do you think you uniquely understand about how people learn or, or how people should teach that, uh, that others would benefit from?
1: Oh yeah. Online courses is my, one of my like top things. I really think people do not get what is happening. You know, online education has this crazy hype cycle, Um, with this trough of disillusionment, I think the, the potential of online learning is so big that the trough of disillusionment is deeper than for other things, right? It seems like every one to two years, there's a new, there's a new product or platform or thing. Everyone gets excited. Universities are going to be dead in six months. And then there's a trough of disillusionment six months later, and then it goes again. But I mean, my, my living Uh, The great majority of my revenue and my time is spent on uh, online courses. It's really my business and every indication I see, like all the providers that I use of the the different software and the online platforms, they're bursting at the seams. They can barely keep the servers online because the rate of growth in online courses is so crazy. The thing is, I think it it looks very differently from what people think. People are looking for like which university is going to go online you know, is it gonna be Harvard or Stanford? And they have their little experiments, but they're they're rooted in the old business model. Or they're looking at the marketplaces. They're looking at Skillshare, Udemy, Udacity, Coursera, thinking that one of them is gonna like achieve like this Facebook level scale. The problem is that learning doesn't scale the same way that social media does. That's a whole other conversation. But there's a there's a new wave, there's a new generation of online course platforms that are essentially white label platforms. Um, and what I mean by that is they don't say, like, we'll give you users or we'll, like, all you have to do is create a course and we'll, like, do all the rest. That actually failed, right? And in fact, I, I was on one of the marketplaces, Skillshare, before, and I didn't own the customer relationship, right? I spent years building up my audience, and then one day, Skillshare said, oh, no, actually, that's our audience, not yours. So that's when I left and went to Teachable. Teachable is the, the leader in this new generation, and what they do is they just give you the tools. They say, here's a checkout system, a video hosting system, and like a learn, an LMS, a learning management system. You do everything else. You create all the content, all the marketing, all the promotion, everything. And that has actually been hard. It's really hard for a solo creator to do all those things, but it creates sustainable businesses. That's the big difference. Before this wave of tool makers, you know, on Skillshare, on the marketplaces, on edX, which is free, you couldn't make a living. You had hobbyists, you know, before about five years ago, all online teachers, except a few superstars were hobbyists. Now online courses are incredibly profitable. I mean, I have an 82% margin because all the SaaS things are so cheap, right? Every single course sale, it's, it's an information product. It's almost pure margin, right?
0: One thing you're, you're giving a talk uh, in October uh, at a crypto conference about the rise of crypto as a meta discipline. Uh, t- talk a little bit about that.
1: So uh, I was invited to speak at this conference and I th- I was, I almost deleted it. I'm sure I th- was sure it was a scam. Everything about crypto that I see is usually a scam. So I just go, no. Nope. Um, but then I looked at the email and I saw that it was, it seemed legit. I, I messaged her and asked her why she wanted, you know, something on digital note-taking at a crypto conference. It didn't make any sense. Um, and she came back with an incredible reply. She had gone through all my work and she said, the levels of information overload that we're seeing in the crypto community are epidemic, you know, even more than the average knowledge worker, because with crypto, it's like, it's not a normal industry where you just like subscribe to like one newsletter and you're just like, you know, kept up to date. It's crypto is this intersection of like a dozen different fields, It's law, and it's economics, and it's technology, and it's software, and it's psychology. It's like all these things. And I actually think that 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 is a taste of things to come, where in the future, all fields are going to be like that. All fields are going to be multidisciplinary meta-fields. Um, And you're going to have to track multiple fields, no matter how specialized you are. And again, this is completely self-serving, but you're going to need to be able to manage an order of magnitude or two more information than you have to now, not just to advance or achieve these wonderful goals, but just to keep up, just to keep up. You're going to have to do that. So what I'm going to be presenting is more or less, you know, my, my building a second brain methodology, but geared toward how does one keep track of a field that is intersectional and that is advancing at such an incredible pace. Totally.
0: A couple of other things that you write about, one is uh, servant hedonism. And I'm, I'm curious how, how that relates to, or different differs from servant leadership. And then also pleasure as a organizing principle. And I'm curious how you sort of differentiate between pleasure and meaning or if you differentiate at all.
1: Yeah, this has been a <clears throat> kind of a kick that I've been on the past few months. Um, started with a book I read by an activist named Adrian Marie Brown. It's called pleasure activism and her previous book, emergent strategy, which were amazing. I have a summary of emergent strategy on my blog. Then it went to a few other sources, but basically I think there, there's something where work is get. So this is related to our previous conversation. Work is getting so creative, right? It's like the percentage of work that is, that needs to be creative uh, is increasing all the time and, and soon, if not already, completely dominates, right? There, there just won't be tasks left for humans that don't involve creativity. That it's necessitating us getting in touch with the inherent pleasure of work, right? Like you can't, it's, you can't really do creative work like a robot. You can't really do it in a rote way. It just doesn't work. It doesn't come out well, Right. So it's almost like, like what I saw my dad having to deal with. My dad is an artist. He's a painter. So like my, my whole model for this has been a profound influence on me. My whole model of work all growing up was that, of course, your work is your passion and also your craft and also your source of income. It's all mixed up. Right. And my dad would paint every day in the studio, but he would have to like constantly find new sources of inspiration, constantly have creative breakthroughs and, and, you know, get around creative blockages. It was like personal growth and creative growth and creative expression was an inherent part of his work. And so it's almost like I saw how the future would be, you know, how it is now, basically by watching my dad work as an artist um, and people hate hearing this, but we're all, we're all artists now. Like, we're all kind of doing a kind of a form of art. And one of those things that you have to get in touch with is pleasure. If you can't get in touch with the, the essential pleasure of work, find that flow, find the edge that actually is the balance between uncertainty and certainty, then you're, you're really never going to excel, I think.
0: And uh, I'm curious how you think about sort of pleasure and, and meaning.
1: I like the word pleasure because it's, it's like, if you use other words like purpose or passion or meaning, it's like, there's sort of this utilitarian uh, element, like, oh, there needs to be a, an end, right? Yeah, you may enjoy it, but there needs to be some utilitarian, objective value creation purpose. And there's this thing I'm, I'm starting to just like, like realize or learn that human lives cannot be the means to an end right? Like even especially your own, I see this with startup founders and entrepreneurs. They, they like boil down their life to this like utility function where their own, their only purpose is to make this company work. Um, and I think that that's that it it devalues their life and in a way where they lose all the joy, they lose all the, the satisfaction, you know, even when they reach a goal, they raise a new round of funding, they feel nothing. There's no pleasure in it. You know, they, they have an exit. Like when I talk to, to people I know that have exited, it's like devastating many, much of the time. Yeah. They're happy, but like, you know, they, they, they devastated their peace of mind through the process of building that company. And so I like pleasure. Cause it's just like, it's shameless. It's completely, there's no justification. There's no utility. You are the purpose. You are the end and the means. What matters is human pleasure. And starting to look at everything, productivity, even like climate change through that, like who cares if we fix the climate and save the earth and everyone is miserable? Like, what's the point, right? The purpose of fixing the climate is human joy and human flourishing. Um, So that starts to get very metaphysical, but that's sort of my own philosophical journey.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I like the word flourishing. It's broad because pleasure could sometimes be seen as short term versus... As opposed to long-term, immediate, or, or something could be pleasurable in the short term, but you know, like cheating on your wife or something, but could you know lead to disastrous consequences.
1: Long term, yeah. So the, the way that Adrian Marie Brown says this, I love. She's like, you know, if you really commit to pleasure, you realize that many of the things we think are pleasurable are quite shallow. You know, um, social media, watching Netflix, uh, smoking, um, junk food, like. You know, it's like the hamburger. It's halfway through yeah. eating the hamburger. It doesn't even taste good at all. Yeah. Um, and so actually, if we redouble our commitment to pleasure, then suddenly it starts to incorporate our values, right? It starts to incorporate treating others well, which is really treating others well is the, the ultimate high. You know, it's like really having a positive impact on someone's life. This is servant hedonism right? The reason I insist on the word hedonism is seeing someone's eyes light up because you just unleash something for them. It's just like, it's it's ecstasy. It's pure ecstasy. And I I can't think of anything more pleasurable than that. On that note, uh, my guest today has been Tiago Forte.
0: Tiago, it's been a fantastic episode. Thank you so much for coming to the podcast.
1: Of course, my pleasure.
0: (laughs) If you want to go deeper into Tiago's work, follow him at Forte Labs on Twitter. Uh, Check him out, fortelabs.co, praxis.fortelabs.co, and his newsletter, of course, fortelabs.co slash subscribe. Tiago, thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Eric.
0: If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash catalyst.